Okay, today we have Justin Short. Okay, what were you saying about uh, about Laverne, the the famous five string bass? Oh yeah, yeah. Laverne is my famous five string bass that uh, I sent it to my brother Isaac Short of the Weird Sisters. Oh uh, yeah, uh, under the pretense that uh, he was not never to sell it to buy drugs or pay rent because <laughs> I, I got kicked out of my last band and hadn't played Laverne in like thirteen years. I'm like. Laverne needs some love. So she's getting some love with him for sure. Like, if, you know, every now and then I'll hear where he's used her on a studio track and, yep. you know, it's just like, I get goosebumps. Yeah. That's, that's the main base that he uses. And I'm, I, yeah. I remember the first time he showed it to me, I was surprised. Cause I was like, you play five string. Cause I've never been much of like a five string guy. And he's yeah. always like, fuck yeah. So he, he loves that <laughs> bass. He gets a lot of use out of it. Yeah, yeah, I've I've been stoked about that. You know, occasionally I'll catch a video or you know, like at Brown's Diner or something, someone's playing Laverne on stage. Yeah, I've pl- I've played that bass before. Just uh, oh, jam- really? <laughs> yeah, just jamming over at at their house in their basement. <laughs> nice. Because sometimes I'll just come over and not have a bass, and they'll have that one. And uh, yeah, the five strings intimidate me. That low B intimidates me. Oh yeah, yeah, and it just shakes the house if you got an amp that can push it. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. tell me a little bit about the bike ride you just got done with. What was it? Holy shit. Yeah, the uh, Cross Washington mountain bike race. It's this uh, 90% off pavement route that uh, this goofball out here in Seattle put together. Uh, and, and he did it mainly to raise awareness for the Eastern John Wayne Trail, or it's now the. Uh, uh, Palouse to Cascades State Park Trail, but it's a it's a rail trail that goes almost all the way across Washington. That uh, you know, some farmers tried to get the thing shut down uh, by hiding some things and some legislation. And someone caught it, and this guy put together uh, a race every year to get people riding the damn thing, and, and <laughs> it's. Uh, uh, and his route is not just straight across Washington. This thing is like a 700 miles of, uh, you know, there's out on the Olympic Peninsula, there's this beautiful single track and, and there's some high mountain passes in the, in the Cascades proper. And then you go out into the desert and just get, you know, blown apart by wind and dust and tumbleweeds. And, and, you know, you get to see, just about all that Washington has to offer, which is quite something. It, it's it's a mind blowing route from one end to the other. Does it go from west to east, or what is the path? Uh, you can do it either way. Uh, yeah, the 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 route for the Grand Depart is, uh, and the Grand Depart is a thing that happens in bike packing where everyone shows up on the same day and they all take off at the same time. So uh, we we go west to east dunk the back wheel in the pacific ocean and head for the idaho border and uh it's <laughs> it, it was a kick in the pants for sure how um, long does it take uh there were I, I think like four days and 11 hours or something is the course record uh and the folks who were trying to win the thing they will ride you know, usually all the way through the first night and then fall down for a ditch nap at some point the next day and, and just take ditch naps all the way across. Uh, a friend of mine, this Australian dude, uh, is really on his game for this stuff. He he got fifth place in the race this year and he slept five and a half hours. Oh my God. (laughs) How many people do the race? Uh, they were like 48 or something like that showed up at the beach and you know, last year before the lockdown, I think we had like 75 people signed up and by signing up, I mean, you just put your name on the list and show up. There's no registration. There's no, no support of any kind. You know, you have this little GPS tracker and people know where you are, you know, so if something goes really wrong, you can call in the helicopters or something. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's about 45 of us and, and, uh, you know, sometimes you get to ride with folks and, and sometimes you're on your own. 
How do you pre prepare for something like that? What do you have to do? What do you have to have ready? Uh, well, one thing you got to do is like ram a bike seat up your ass for hours on end. <laughs> yeah, just, just going on long goofball rides has been my method. You know, I, I try to, I, I do a little bit of yoga, you know, I'll, I'll do like probably five or 10 minutes a day. And then once a week, I'll try and do like a proper yoga class, you know, which has been tough this past year getting out for, sure. for that yeah uh and then the, the other thing that i do that's been it, it was the thing that made me think that uh ultra bike pack racing was possible for me which is wim hof method you familiar with that yeah yeah so uh for people listening can you just explain what that is yeah that is a breath uh exercise well it, it's it's breath exercise combined with cold exposure and uh anything else yeah yeah some light yoga but yeah they, they teach some really passive yoga where you're just kind of using your weight to uh stretch and and you know like in the course they have you doing like two and a half minutes of yoga <laughs> yeah less less than five minutes and so i just took a few of the postures out of that 10 week course that I liked. And, you know, that ends up being about, you know, five or 10 minutes a day, but the, the breathing exercise is kind of the, the main thing where you're taking a series of, we'll say 40 deep breaths. And then after the last one, you let your air out and hold your breath for as long as you can. What is the point of, of doing that? What does it do? Uh, for starters, it spikes your, pH about two and a half points. Uh, it helps your uh, aerobic capacity by improving your uh, CO2 resilience. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a boost of energy physically, uh, but it also has some emotional uh, benefits as well. And, and you know, you're a, uh, a daily yoga practitioner of, uh, uh, you know, what are you doing like 45 minutes to an hour every day? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, you know, from doing that kind of uh, exercise that there's a kind of spaciousness you get to your awareness. Absolutely. Yeah. For me, yeah. once, once I got into regular yoga practice, I learned like the physicality of breathing while doing something strenuous and it almost becomes automatic it's not even something that i had to really quote unquote learn how to do it was almost like i started yeah. doing it by default just taking those breaths in whatever i'm about to do something uh before i'm about to do something difficult and exhaling whatever i'm actually in the action of doing it mm -hmm. yeah in the beginning i would i would do like a difficult pose and i would be just struggling and breathing and everything like that and taking my breaths at the wrong spot but once i kind of got that underway and just like i was saying automatically doing that things became way easier it, it was like i was moving with the flow of the universe when i did something yeah hard. yeah yeah I, I, i've i've done yoga like that consistently for a while and had that effect and i've done a lot of qigong over the years and had that effect and you know it takes a good hour plus every day to get that kind of effect from qigong and and uh you know, two weeks into doing Wim Hof method. And that was like, uh, you know, it takes about 15 minutes to do three rounds of breathing and, and boom, it was, you know, like the, the physical, uh, boost of energy was, was palpable. Two weeks in a friend of mine told me, Hey man, you got to check out this cross Washington mountain bike race. I thought, fuck, I'm in. <laughs> felt so good <laughs> have you ever done in, anything like that before you did that like something physically challenging uh i'm a lifelong biker you know and i've done a lot of bike touring uh but i hadn't really done you know that many miles you know trying to bust out 700 miles in a week um uh, with that much elevation and and you know some of the chunky surfaces that we ended up riding every guy. There was a day on the first one where uh, I was stumbling over fist-sized boulders for 60 miles. In oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah fuck that sounds uncomfortable yeah it was awful and it was you know there there was an alternate route well actually that was the alternate route because the high the high route usually has snow this time of year and it did but you know it sounded like a way better option than taking that that horrible chunky route again so uh i took the high route and yeah, there was snow up there. I was dragging through the snow and hoisting the bike over trees. And my God, there were views from, you know, snow-capped mountains for as far as the eye could see. It was really, really quite jaw-dropping up there. And then the uh, the trails coming down were smooth and flowy, and it was so much better. Did you hit a point uh, while you were doing it where you were questioning, like, why the hell am I doing this right now? Or was it something that you're like, I'm doing this because it's difficult and I want to see how far I can push myself. Well, the first time around, I wasn't quite sure what was possible. You know, that, that was 2019. And, you know, I, I was about, uh, uh, five months out when I decided to do it. And, and I, I prepared as best I knew how. And, and, uh, you know, I think it was, three days in when I made a 140 mile effort and discovered the next day that I put a little too much, too much out there and cracked you know, that, that day when I was stumbling over the fist sized boulders. And so then next day I just kind of soft pedaled it, put myself back together for 75 miles. And then, then the last two days were, you know, straight hundred mile days that were, it came off all right, and uh, you know I felt pretty good at the end of it. So this time around, I've got a lot more uh, long days on the bike under my belt, and and, and you know I'm way way uh, better now at uh, knowing when to conserve energy. So of course, first day out, you know, I, I go 172. Yeah, yeah, I, I got 172 miles and climb almost 17,000 feet. <laughs> and it was the second day I was fucking cracked. Holy shit. Well, what uh, are you going through mentally when, when you reach that breaking point where you just feel physically broken down? What, what kind of thoughts are going through your mind? I feel like I would yeah. just like have random flashbacks to my childhood, bad relationships I had. <laughs> Think about what an asshole yeah. I was at different times in my life. Yeah. You know, I just tap into the breath and enjoy the view. Like the nice thing about you know, cracking on the Olympic Peninsula is that, you know, you got ferns, you got dug firs, you got uh, cedar groves and, and, you know, there's the Straits of Juan de Fuca and, you know, Hey, that's Vancouver Island across the way there. You know, that's Canada. Uh, you know, and it's just lovely as, as all get out, you know, like no matter how crappy I feel, uh, you know, it's just lovely out there. And so that, that was it. The second day, I just kind of felt like, you know, I, I was eating all day, but, you know, the food wasn't quite uh, giving me energy. I felt like I was on the edge of bonking. And then, you know, it kind of felt like I was on the edge of dehydration, too. And until about five o'clock, you know, like your body will kind of hit the what they call hit the bump at some point and and switch to burning fat from burning sugar and then. And then, you know, kind of that bonky feeling goes away. And so that was like 5 p.m. after, you know, starting it. I think it was like 7 a.m. when we started riding that morning. And But then I didn't go too far after that. I found a train tunnel. I was like, yep, staying here. <laughs> as, soon as, I, as soon as I rolled out my sleeping bag and that thing, it started to rain outside. So you found like a, a nice dry spot to to sleep in, or at least relatively dry compared to yeah, yeah. It was damp in there, you know, like mist is kind of flowing through. But you know, you're in the Cascades, and you know anything anywhere is going to get wet. And so I, I was sawing logs, though. I only slept three hours the night before, and and uh, the middle of the night, you know, I I wake up screaming bloody freaking murder because uh you know there's headlights coming through <laughs> and, oh and, shit uh, was there a train coming towards you uh well this is a rail trail uh and i thought the route turned off before the tunnel so I thought, yeah no one's coming through here but these four dudes from montana came in <laughs> and they see uh 
you know, I, I just sit up in my sleeping bag screaming bloody murder and it scared the crap out of them. <laughs> oh, shit. So yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you lived. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, God, I laughed about that the whole next day. And that kind of got me over the mountains. Uh, like there was, a, there was a point where I was going so slow. My dad's watching my little GPS dot on the, on the track leader's website. And he's like, he calls my wife. He's like, boy i'm really worried about him he's going slow out there you know he's only averaging like two miles an hour and then you know next day when i had a phone signal lynn told me about that i was like really i was going that fast yeah (laughs) Yeah, i I imagine you feel pretty broken down at that point because your body's just completely worn out yeah yeah well i mean that kind of by the point by the time i hit the the high altitude route you know, I was, I was putting myself back together and just, just keeping myself reined in and, and not letting myself think I should be going any faster than I was, you know, which is like a slow trudge uphill through the snow. Uh, there's more trees. There's hundreds of trees to hoist my bike over, but the view was so nice up there. And, uh, honestly, it was one of my best days on the bike ever. Like I freaking cried coming down the hill at Wenatchee. It was, it was, was it like, because because you were just so taken aback by like what you were doing the views you're doing this extremely physically challenging thing yeah yeah and, and just loving being out there and and uh yeah you know the the uh, the riding was great the scenery was great you know i, I felt some level of good you know kind of kind of pushing the edge of that but uh yeah i knew there was a a freezer lasagna in a hotel room waiting for me at the end of the day and a hot shower oh yeah hot shower yeah it was that was you know there was a bunch of these uh women mountain bikers in wenatchee when i came down there like the last descent was three thousand feet with this uh with this little practical joke of a 1200 foot climb right at the very bottom where you think you should be popping out into town and suddenly like oh crap here's another 1200 feet to climb <laughs> but yeah really the mountain biker girls were there they were they were welcoming and and uh I, I, one of them asked well, what is this race you're doing it sounds like something a friend of mine would do it's like well who's your friend she said troy hopwood and that's the guy who organized the race i'm like yeah <laughs> this is definitely something you would do uh, that's hilarious yeah yeah man that was a good day uh and then the day after that you know there were probably 12 of us riding out of wenatchee together in the morning so i got to hang out with a bunch of folks and some of them i knew already from the previous ride and a bunch i had just met and yeah that was a uh, it was just fun there, there's like three kinds of people who who end up on these things you know like there are people like me the first time around in 2019 wondering if you're going to survive mm-hmm. and then there's the people who are trying to win and uh and then there's the other people just out there to have fun which is what i was doing but i also set some i i, I didn't really set goals for myself for this thing but I, I just wanted to see what it would be like to do a big day out of the gate and and put myself back together and and that worked out and then have a have a a, a huge freaking slow ass day up in the high altitude and that was fun and then uh, finish up with a 200 mile day so was that yeah. that last 200 miles when you're kind of getting to the end there what are you knowing like okay i'm at the end here i this is the final push i can do this or what where are you at mentally when you're on those last 200 miles yeah, mentally I was I was good. I knew where the water supplies were and I was uh I was being a little more strategic about uh when to fill up my water. Cause that's one thing I always did was you know, carry as much water as I possibly could at all times. And <laughs> that ends up that that ends up being being pretty difficult because water's heavy you know so i knew where it was and and uh yeah i didn't really have any worries about running out of water or food and and so it was just kind of relaxing and at certain points i started uh 
listening to a lot of music, which I don't usually when I'm on the bike. But it's a nice dopamine bump when I do because I, I find myself a little music starved, and then I'll put on the rock out playlist, and it's like goosebumps and adrenaline and, and dopamine and out the wazoo. It's so nice. Well, it, yeah. it helps you kick into that that extra gear that you need to when you're kind of dragging ass a little bit. You can push forward with the right uh, the right song. Yeah, yeah, or you know, I can just I can just sit there and enjoy myself and not wonder, oh, when's this going to be over, you know, and not have to play the, the the tricks with myself. One of the big things that I did in the last two years is really dial in the fit on my bike, which I got this bike in in February, so <laughs> I had some work on my hands to get this to, to get the fit right on this one, but but I knew what I was looking for, and and it ended up. You know, twenty-hour day on the bike was no problem. So Isaac mentioned to me that you uh, you're like a regular meditation kind of practicer, and you also were pretty heavy into Buddhism at one point. Well, I, I followed a Gnostic tradition that was pretty eclectic, and it drew a lot uh, from Buddhist traditions for uh, for its understanding uh, of meditation practice. And so, yeah, I started practicing, uh, 2001 and yeah, around 2006, we got drafted to teach. And so we ran our, our Gnostic center in Portland for five years before we handed that off and moved up to Spokane, hoping to open a, a center here. But it ended up that the only people that came to our classes and stayed were crazy. You know, like there, there's meditation can help balance some people out and it'll exacerbate problems for people who are unbalanced. And, How so? Uh, I, well, it, it, it can ramp up the energy inside of yourself, you know, the same way yoga does, you know, it has an energizing effect and, uh, you know, some, some folks are, you know, just in a place where they can't handle that that energy and you know lynn and i are not uh uh you know mental health professionals <laughs> you know, yeah like, no yeah absolutely so it, it's yeah. almost like uh like they say in spider-man with great power comes great responsibility yeah yeah absolutely and uh you know it ended up though uh, you know i had started teaching in the prisons here uh, we'd start in the prison. prisons. Yeah. in the prisons. And, you know, so I'm going into these groups, there's murderers and rapists in there and I'm having a great experience with them. But like these people are coming to our house. I'm like, man, you gotta go. <laughs> you can get be here. <laughs> okay. So back up for a second. I, I have a million yeah. questions about this. Oh yeah. Okay. How, how did you get involved with the prisons? Uh, when I was still in Portland, I got a letter from a guy uh, asking for some guidance for meditation and, uh, you know, he told me he was 19 years old. He'd been in prison for three years. And, you know, I, I wrote him a response. It was all inspiring and impassioned. And then before I sent it, though, I was like, wait a minute. This guy went to prison when he was 19 or when he was 16. And he's in maximum security. What the hell did he do? You know, so about two minutes on google i found out you know i was like oh shit so i kind of wrote another more neutral response and just spent uh about a good year corresponding with him by mail uh just to see if he was balanced or not and yeah. they seemed to be all right and then you know that that year kind of coincided with uh, our move to spokane and just about three weeks after that, uh, this guy got transferred from the uh, maximum security prison in Walla Walla to the prison outside of Spokane. And uh, so we started going up there to visit him through the, you know, friends and family visitation. You know, we're, we're trying to do meditation practices in these crowded rooms. You know, everyone else's tables are covered with like junk food from the vending machines <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Was the, 
And, uh, you know, we're sitting there trying to do practices and talk with each other about our practice. And so this guy had a bunch of friends in there who wanted help. And so we we're trying to, I was writing letters to them. You can only visit one person in the prison at a time here. And so that turned into uh, starting the process of uh, getting our Gnostic tradition uh, officially recognized by the Department of Corrections. That took about a year and a half. Uh, but once we did, we could go in there and have a group. And, you know, you know, there are anywhere from, you know, 15 or 20 people who would come to these groups. And they, uh, you know, a few of them, you know, have a meditation practice and they're pretty, uh, pretty serious about it. You know, and others are kicking tires, and and most of them will go to anything uh, meditation related. And you know, there were always a small handful who were actually interested in the tradition that we were presenting. And I say work because I don't know. My wife and I have both kind of lost our religion for different reasons. Uh, <laughs> If you don't mind me asking, why was it that you uh, lost your religion? Was was there something in particular that happened, or was it just something naturally with time where you feel like you got everything you could get out of it? Uh, I, I had a problem with uh, something I call mystical repression, and it's something that uh, uh, I, I don't know that it's even avoidable, but it, it's uh, a process. Uh, of taking your uh, your main defense mechanisms and trying to spiritualize them. And uh, that's what I found out that, that I had been doing after, uh, let's see, that was in 2014, my wife and I went on a month-long silent Buddhist retreat. And, you know, that, that, was, that was a wonderful experience. Uh, and then the following six months were like being on a bad mushroom trip, uh, in that, you know, the, these painful emotions that, that my personality is kind of organized to repress, they were coming up. And, uh, I found myself for these six months kind of scrambling, with my practice to try and push down the stuff that's coming up again because I had a practice and that's not something that anyone in our tradition was talking about. Uh, and I don't know, our, our, the Gnostic tradition I was following, well, it gives a good talk about meditation. They're the worst teachers. Uh, <laughs> so I, I wasn't getting any help from there. And, uh, but I met a Qigong teacher uh, out in the woods one day. I, <laughs> I ate some mushrooms and took the dogs for a walk down to the river. And uh, met a woman on the trail coming the other way. She had a dog and and we got to chatting. And turns out she's a Qigong teacher from Canada. And she was down there and she was in Spokane teaching a workshop and she specializes in, uh, you know, what to do with, uh, stuck and repressed emotions. <laughs> and so I just had a, had a great conversation with her by the river. I ended up going to her workshop and while and, you were uh, on mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was kind of peeking while I was chatting with her <laughs> uh, and yeah, it was, you know, I, I'd said a little prayer about that very thing when I left the house. You know, I was like, man, I just need some guidance. <laughs> and there she was. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it, it, once I became aware of my own uh, repression, it became just absurdly obvious in, in the way that people in our community were uh, repressing themselves, you know, and, and spiritualizing their defense mechanisms. And, but, you know, there wasn't really a, a, a platform or an open door to talk about it. 
And so I just kind of drew back from the community and, and, and at the same time, and I went on a, on a bike packing trip in Vermont and <laughs> I was sitting at a B and B looking at Facebook and I'm like, what the hell? My wife had denounced Gnosis as a, as a cult on Facebook. I was like, you really, as you just outed me as a cult leader on Facebook, <laughs> you know, I, I was just being goofball about it, not taking it seriously, but the organization I've been part of kicked me out very oh, quietly. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they didn't even bother to talk to me about it. I'm like, well, okay, here's my answer. And, you know, that was kind of the beginning of my, uh, dark night of the soul, you know, cause I, I had had a lot invested in, uh, in my identity as a, you know, Gnostic teacher and, and, uh, and a bit of my sense of purpose about that. And so that kind of was blowing in the wind and, you know, for my wife, you know, she was kind of traumatized by the, the doctrine because it's, it has a really pessimistic outlook, which doesn't bother me because, you know, like I, I, I'm an optimist, <laughs> to yeah. an absurd degree because that, that's my that's my main defense mechanism is the uh you know the the tragic need to be okay with everything i can totally relate to that I, <laughs> yeah I, when i was younger so like thinking back to my teenage years through like young adulthood maybe 19 or 20 i was very pessimistic and blunt and um i went through like a major depressive episode when i was mm -hmm. roughly 17 or 18 and during that time frame i wanted to absolutely kill myself i was suicidal i i yeah. hated everything but mainly i hated myself i really didn't hate everything i hated myself so yeah. therefore everything outside of me i disliked entirely and i yeah. i just wanted nothing to do with it i thought the world was shit because i felt like shit but coming out of that, basically what I did, I graduated high school, moved down to Florida for six months to move in with my sister. And I kind of sweated it out a little bit yeah. where I could bounce back. Cause the reason that I was so depressed is just, I saw no hope for myself for a future. I knew I wasn't going to college. I knew I didn't want to have a job and like lead a normal lifestyle, which I'm, I'm sure you can kind of relate to that. a little. Oh yeah. Bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, like coming out of that, and it's funny to look back because I'm 29 now and just to see the way that I've changed. Because I would say now I'm, I'm a fairly optimistic, happy-go-lucky person. I, I definitely have my moments, mm -hmm. but um, it's definitely as a response to that time frame of my life where I was just negative, nasty, angry. With the fact that I was even alive, I resented the universe for me being alive. Yeah, yeah, I can totally relate with that. Yeah, and listening to your story in some of your episodes uh, is, you know, I've become a listener here. <clears throat> Thank you. I appreciate Yeah, that. yeah, like, uh, uh, I, you know, one of the things that, that I learned about, uh, it's not... Uh, it, it was coloring outside the lines as far as gnosis goes, but uh, our first instructor taught us about the Enneagram, and I've been studying it ever since. Uh, you know, if I had to guess, uh, I would say that your your personal uh, psychological profile is an Enneatype one. Uh, it, you know, because you talk about this this voice of, of this inner critic that you have. Mm -hmm. that a lot of uh a lot of any type ones when they start to become more self-aware they notice like oh everyone doesn't have this you know and you're having these aha moments that oh other people see the world in other ways <laughs> but there's a there's a a line between i'm a type seven isaac's a type seven too um that uh I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure for type ones, like if, when they're in comfort, they kind of move towards seven, and when I'm in stress, I move toward one. So, like the like the lower spiral of any type one is being really self-critical and really critical of others. 
Uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's definitely I would say accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, and and it, you know, you know, the, the healthy side of one is that like you can get some shit done, and you know, put out some some very high quality work, and, and uh, you know, yeah, like the the high end of one is is some good shit for sure. Uh, you know, and I, I notice when I'm swinging into the stressed out and swinging into the low end of one. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's what is terrible. what is type seven? Can you talk a little bit about that? Like the yeah. the highs with that and some of the the downside to it. Yeah, yeah. Like the uh, well, just to give a brief introduction to the enneagram, it's just a shortcut for understanding personality patterns. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, uh, you know, there, there are three basic uh, brains that we have, you know, between the, the intellectual center, emotional center, and the body center, and, and everyone kind of leans into one more than the other two. The goal is to be balanced, but, you know, uh, the Enneotype 1 is a body type, and Enneotype 7 is, a, is an intellectual type. Uh, doesn't mean well smart (laughs) you know uh it just means that like that's how we process life is is how we think about it my wife's in any type nine which is body type and she's she always processes life about you know through how you feel physically you know like she she's so physical she can tell when i'm not in the room in my mind you know like the the lights are out and and uh she, she'll ask me, all right, where are you? Where'd you go? Can't feel you in the room. <laughs> I'm off thinking something, some grand scheme of one kind or another. Yeah. So uh, can, yeah. You, can you break, break down the, the, the seven type a little bit? So you said it's an intellectual, like what exactly does that mean? Does it mean you're, you go within your mind or? Yeah. Yeah. You disappear into your head. Uh, you know, for sevens, they tend to be extroverted, uh, tend to be the life of the party, uh, tend to uh, be the last one to find out when they're not in a good mood. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. What do you mean I'm yelling? What do you mean I'm pissed off? You know, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's been me for sure. You know, and 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 always uh, ready, willing, and able to throw a a silver lining on any dark cloud you know and and so I, you know i i discovered after 14 years of having a meditation practice like oh yeah i was i was trying to uh never feel bad ever again with this you know and that's just <laughs> that's not a very grown-up way to 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 look at uh, your emotional life no and, no and it, it's yeah. not it's not possible because yeah. things are going to happen in life. People are going to get sick. Mm-hmm. People, you know, people are going to die. Wh- whatever number of horrible things that the human experience we have to deal with, they're going to happen. But the good things yeah. happen too. Yeah. Yeah. And so the preoccupation with uh, intellectual types in general is uh, security. And so between the three different kinds of intellectual type, you know, it's your strategy for security. So for sevens, you know, you want to be secure that you're going to have a good time, you know, like that's, that's the main thing that, 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 uh, your typical seven is concerned about. And, uh, you know, type six is more concerned about survival, you know, and, you know, they tend to be worry warts and, and, you know, always, always catastrophizing and, and Neurotic. thinking about, yeah, yeah. Contingency plans. Yeah. You can like see them, their eyes are darting around. And then there's the counterphobic sixes. Like, I think a lot of, uh, 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 standup comics are counterphobic sixes. They can be like real belligerent and, and combative and funny as hell. And, you know, just really keen and insightful in the way they, pick shit apart and and ridicule it (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh yeah and and then fives are kind of like the 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 monks of the of the intellectual types you know they 
they tend to want to be quiet and reserved and you know if they're around people they want to be around one person and then they need a break and then you know it's the way they tend to spiritualize their defense mechanism is spiritualizing silence you know i had a friend who started coming to classes with us when we first started teaching and and you know that's what he did to the point of you know like hey man how's it going he'd look you in the eye for like a full minute and then give you a one-word response good <laughs> you know? and then he, later on he got married and he wanted to talk to me he was like man i don't know what to do i come home and my wife she wants to talk to me <laughs> i was like man that sounds like a problem you'd have with your first wife <laughs> you know <laughs> meaning <laughs> yeah you know they, i think they lasted two years which is about a year longer than i imagine uh yeah and then, and then there's the emotional types the three of those that uh you know one emotional type is completely absorbed in their own emotions another type is completely uh absorbed in other people's emotions and then there's the the middle type that's uh oblivious to their own and everyone else's emotions <laughs> is that uh four three and two or what are the what are the numbers for yeah it's those uh two three and four for the emotional types uh five six and seven for the intellectual types and then eight nine and one for the uh for the body types you know, and, and we all have everything inside of ourselves. And, For sure. Human beings have yeah. a lot of range. Yeah. Like the, the best thing that, that Lynn and I ever did was go to uh, a series of any panels in Portland. You know, there was a, a group there called the Portland Enneagram Society. I, I know in Nashville, there's tons of groups doing this stuff right now. And it's, I've been really impressed with the work they're putting out. Uh, but you know, they have a panel discussion. They'll have, you know, like a half dozen of the given type on the panel and having, you know, Q and a and, and, uh, you know, but you'd feel the energy in the room, like, Oh, wow. That's where this is inside of me. Yeah. Like I have this and it helps you to empathize with people you don't understand and understand your natural affinities and the natural repulsions that you have and it's like oh okay it's just this uh you know I, I, when i was doing this i was at a warehouse uh at work one day and saw this guy scooting by on a on a forklift that you know he just rubbed my fur the wrong way and i was like oh yeah okay he's just looking critically at things and and i can't stand for that you know if, if there's one thing a seven is intolerant of, it's intolerance. It's like, hey, man, it's all cool. No, man, no, really, it's all cool. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh -huh. if you're not cool, man, I'm not cool. You're not being cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, like that's kind of the subconscious conversation I'm having with myself about people that rub my fur that way. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Now I can just take a deep breath, accept this person for, you know, who he is and how he sees the world and, you know, you know, it, it's helped me to have way more harmonious relationships in my life and, and create fewer problems. Yeah. You know, I think that was the thing with, uh, you know, long-term, uh, over the, you know, having a meditation practice for a lot of years, like it really cleaned up a lot of surface level conflicts I had in my life. And, uh, once that dust had settled, you know, that was like, okay, now let's face the monsters of the deep. And you yeah, had to be honest, the monsters of the deep scared the fuck out of me. And, uh, I haven't really had a consistent daily practice since then, you know, and of course the, the tradition I was following, they were, they pushed a kind of juggernautism that wasn't really sustainable for the kind of life that I have anyway. Uh, you know, they wanted you to meditate four to six hours a day and most of the night. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the guy who was the, uh, he still is the, the international director for that organization I was, I was in. Uh, he stopped sleeping in uh, February of like 2009. 
And for the next nine years, he didn't sleep. How? How is that uh, physically possible? <laughs> well, he, he's he's uh, he's not driving a truck for a living. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, know, that's, yeah. That's what I do. You know, your life's got to be a good container for that stuff. You know, and I, I have at times uh, had a consistent practice of three or four hours a day. You know, and you get a tremendous boost from that. You know, and Qigong was the same too when I was doing you know, 70 minutes of Qigong every day. I, I didn't need to sleep more than three or four hours. Uh, but this guy but, said know, he, he hadn't slept in a, and since when 2009. Yeah. Yeah. Through like 2018, he started saying like, okay, yeah, I'm starting to sleep three or four hours a night now, but he was pushing this for, for the rest of the community. And it's like, man that's a terrible idea you know because do you think he was bullshitting that he, he wasn't sleeping I, I mean i just don't know how it's physically possible for someone not to sleep you know what i'm saying I, you know i i don't think he was you, you know just the uh the, the way i've been uh you know from the experiences i've had with sleep deprivation uh you know at the time when he first started really pushing that i was you know, working 60 hours a week and then running a center, you know, which was itself a full-time job. So I, I was sustaining myself on three or four hours of sleep every day. And then, you know, about once a week, I'd get a good Rip Van Winkle in. Uh, and, and for the most part, functioning okay. But then, you know, when I'd fall off my practice, I would fall the fuck off my practice, you know, <laughs> and yeah. completely useless. Uh, you know, so it was, it was tough. So I've, I've been, uh, ever since I picked up the Wim Hof method, you know, and, and got that boost, I've been careful not to go all juggernaut with it and turn it into something that's not sustainable with the, with the life that I have. And I just try to, you know, leave time for playing music, leave time for riding a bike, leave time for, uh, you know, spending time with my wife, you know, that's important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, that, that balance yeah. for me has always been something that's a struggle. Cause it's like, when I get into something, I get really into it. I get obsessive mm -hmm. with it. Yeah. Tunnel vision. Exactly. Yeah. I definitely get tunnel vision. And you know, for music it's like, I've been in Nashville for six years now. I've been out of high school for 11. And the one thing that I, I learned last year during the pandemic was not to get so obsessive with what I'm doing. And it really wasn't until the past couple of months I understood that because I got like super back into baseball, which I hadn't been into uh, since I was maybe like, 11 or so and that was oh, yeah. around the time that i got into music and once i got into music it was just that i had yeah. no other hobbies no other interest but that mm -hmm. but that yeah. in, in doing the podcast when the pandemic rolled around my dad moved up to nashville he had all my old baseball cards so i got those back i didn't have anything to do at night for the most part so i would just sit around and watch baseball mm-hmm and once I did that, I found something away from music that I could have fun with and enjoy. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm going off on a total tangent here. But yes, the, <laughs> yeah. the, my, my, I understand now that I have an obsessive nature. And that obsessive nature stems from my childhood. Of, um, from my mom, she always called me lazy, called me retarded, all this shit. And it's almost like... Yeah. I responded in a way where I was like, fuck you. I'm going to be an overachiever and try and do as much shit as possible. Yeah. <clears throat> but the closer yeah. I've gotten to 30, it's burned me out mm -hmm. where I, it's not sustainable. I, ca I can't function and be productive and do things well constantly. If I'm just constantly work, 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 work. And you know what? It leads me, it led me to not getting a lot done putting myself down constantly, being very self-critical, feeling a lot of shame about the fact that I couldn't get things done at a superhuman rate. Like I wanted, yeah. my fantasy was to be a work robot. 
Oh God, yeah. And just yeah. only Getting work all on done. music. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that was just a replacement for you know a mother's love. That's really what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the the, the real mind fuck when you start really looking at yourself. Uh, there is this uh, sociologist. I forget her name was, but she kind of uh pointed out uh and Brene brown talks about it if you've ever read her books i've heard uh, of her i haven't read her yeah, books she's the one who yeah, talks Brene, about empathy yeah yeah she's she's calls herself a shame scientist and uh but yeah she, she cites this other sociologist work that says that you know we either uh you know take on our parents behavior or rebel against it or get someone else to fill that role, you know? And it's like, you know, when you, when you get to go back and take inventory of, uh, your influences, you know, uh, you start to see that stuff. It's, it's kind of a mind fuck. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild how impressionable we are as children. Yeah, Mm -hmm. It's, it's like we're hardware downloading software. When we're little kids, we're downloading software for how to be, a human being. And it, it, there was this point where, you know, a couple of years ago where I really decided to start taking a look at myself and doing a deep dive on mm-hmm. why I am the way I am. Cause I had a bunch of failed relationships Yeah, and I figured out, I always blamed whoever the girl was that I was with, but mm-hmm. it, 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 it may, I figured out it, it takes two to tango. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, I, I'm bringing half this shit in here because for whatever reason, they have something in them where their toxic traits fit into mine like a puzzle piece. And yeah, don't get yeah. me wrong. There was there was some good times with, with some of them. We really mm-hmm. cared for each other and all that. But yeah. the, like a lot of the times, the bad outweighed the good. And mm-hmm. I would make excuse excuses for the bad as to why why to stick with the good, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But uh go back to what you were saying about uh Brene Brown. I cut you yeah, off yeah. about that. Oh yeah, yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah, so I, I was teaching a, a class on on Ennea type eight. Now I'm in my late thirties at this point, and it that's when I had the comprehension of like, oh fuck. You know that that's what my dad's type is, and as far as uh, okay, decline. There we go. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're all in. good. You're all good. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I okay. In fact, the guy who just tried to call me right now, he was in that class. Uh, I, I was teaching a class on any type eight and realizing that. I had over the years since I left home, I was trying to hang that dad hat on other people's heads, you know, because uh, my relationship with my, with my dad was like, oh, yeah, dad will fix it. You know, there's someone needs to talk to. Yeah, dad will talk to him. You know, there's a problem that needs to be handled. Yeah, dad will take care of that. You know, it's like after I left home, I was, you know, I was just having this recollection of like, oh, my God, I was in the class teaching this class when I came to him, I was like, Oh fuck, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And yeah, that that was, that was heavy. Uh, You know, cause I I think at the time I was trying to hang that hat on, on someone who uh, was very politely sidestepping it, not letting it happen. When I realized I was like, okay, I don't have to do this. I, I, I got to be dead for myself. (laughs) And, you reach a certain age where you, where you have, like, you have to realize that no one is going to come to save you. Like, yeah. I, I, like, Hopefully. I wanted, yeah. yeah, I like, I, I realized for myself when it came to dating and relationships that the, the women I, I was dating, I was trying to hang the mom hat on and there's yeah, yeah. nothing that a woman hates <laughs> more oh, than God, being yeah. treated like a mother. And yeah. have you having expectations for her like you would a mother? And it, it's it's unrealistic uh, for I think for anyone out, outside of your family to expect unconditional love yeah. from them. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And God, your your resentment episode went deep into that, man. That was that that was some good good deep diving introspection that you did for that one. Uh thank you. That, yeah. That whole uh 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 that 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 whole limbic system storehouse of of age-old traumas is is uh you know fact as far as i'm concerned <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it's, uh you know because uh, uh the, the emotional center no doesn't know time you know it's like no. if something comes up you know that, that triggers a trauma from when you were seven and and you happen to be 49 you know it's just like you're seven again and you know like i i had a row with my mom uh a couple of months ago, I was visiting her and some shit came up and, you know, I was kind of traumatized by her anger when I was a little kid and, you know, like there was a bumbling seven-year-old again. Uh, and that was interesting to watch, uh, stood up for myself for the first time ever. And I think it was the way I went about it was about as useful as throwing a gallon of gasoline on the fire, <laughs> you know, uh, Oh yeah, no, I, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. It, it's like there's certain aspects. It's our body, our mind, and our spirit is like a house, and different parts of the house can be haunted. You know what I mean? Yeah, the whole house sure. doesn't have to be haunted, mm-hmm. but you can you can have some uh, some poltergeist living in the attic that you hear a certain word or uh, someone uses a certain tone of voice with you. Yeah, and it, it can just make me come undone. And, and now I'm way <laughs> more aware of it. And mm-hmm. um, like a lot of the time, I would like the the way that I respond to things. I respond. I've responded two ways in the past. Whenever I'm in one of those situations that triggers me, one is to completely go with inside myself, mm-hmm. and the other is to lash out. Yeah, yeah, and, and to become like verbally abusive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I didn't quite go to abusive, but yeah, I was I was sort of explosive for the first time ever in my life, and that was, <laughs> you know, that, that 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 was interesting to watch myself do that. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely go into shutdown mode, mm-hmm. you know, for diplomacy's sake. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm left with residual feelings that, that linger for weeks, you know, and, you know, and the other person who's exploded is like, okay, I'm fine now. I know exactly what you mean. Like for myself, yeah. like it, 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 maybe it's not necessarily verbal abuse, but it definitely is that explosion to where it, mm-hmm. it's volatility. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like oh, I, yeah. took, I took this, this personality test. And I scored like slightly above average on vol- volatility. It, 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 I scored like basically it, it's the uh, the Jordan Peterson. It was understand yourself. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever ever heard of Jordan Peterson before. Yeah, but he had a personality type quiz, so I took it just to see. And one of the areas that I didn't, I scored you know it's like a negative score was the, the volatility thing. And I have the tendency when someone says or does something that I don't like. I, I want to go like head on and just address it right in the moment and have it out. Mm-hmm. But that really, and it's different too, based on like the person that I'm, I'm dealing with. Like if, if mm-hmm. it's, if it's a, you know, a woman, then that obviously triggers something Freudian in me. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I'll try and have words with them. But once I kind of realized that it was like, okay, well, what, can I do about this now? Cause mm-hmm. to a certain degree you can change and to a certain degree you can't change. Yeah. Yeah. There's hard wiring to account for, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's what I realized, you know, being married to my wife all the time, she's kind of melancholic and kind of pessimistic, you know, and I was painting my silver lining all over her for years, you know, and then finally when I kind of went through my, depression and you know I, I started having my own shit come up and, and had to look at it and feel it and I'm like wow this is how it is for you she's like yeah this is it I'm like holy fuck this is hard you know and i i, had a, I also had a friend who was kind of grappling with some major suicidal depression like i i wouldn't say i became an empath but 
you know, I would start to feel other people's emotions. I still do to some extent. Mm -hmm. So my resilience to other people's negativity has just gone out the window. Um, and, you know, I, I can kind of feel people's emotional point of view sometimes. And, and that, that's been really helpful to, you know, harmonize relationships in my life. But, man, <laughs> I really got to pump the brakes when I'm around someone who's uh, stewing in toxicity. Um, yeah, I just uh, I can't be around it. Well, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. It's like there's yeah. there's certain things like. So one of the things I do is I'm an Uber and Lyft driver. You know, that's how I pay my bills. Yeah, yeah. And um, man, I have roughly like 15 to 20 people a day get into my car mm -hmm. from all walks of life. And I like the best way to feel the energy of a person that I've realized is to get into an enclosed space with them and have a conversation. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, you can instantly feel the kind of life that someone lives. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, yeah, it's got to be a really... Line. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be an interesting sociology experiment. Oh, dude, yeah. I mean, because it's like there's a lot of tourists in Nashville, but there's also people who live and work here. So I, I meet every kind of uh, you know, background, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, yeah. different every different class that there is in America. I've I've met and talked to now, um, mm -hmm. and a lot of people that I wouldn't have necessarily interacted with because rideshare is really like this great social experiment if you really want to think about it because it's kind of like yeah. McDonald's in a way because everybody. <laughs> for the most part, has had McDonald's at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. Whether they've had it once or they eat it every single week. Yeah. So it's it's like this great equalizer in society. And um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had people that I've picked up from divorce court, funerals. I've had people that I've picked up after they just got married. I've had people, I've picked up like, a dad on his way to the hospital because his wife is in labor. So all these different aspects of uh, of life, I've given over six thousand rides. Oh my goodness! Wow. Yeah, and um, you know, I I hope that I do reach a day and point where I no longer have to do it. But it's mm -hmm. also going to be a really sad day for me not being able to do <laughs> yeah. it anymore. Yeah, just w interacting with that many kind of people, and it's like. I've really developed an emotional intelligence, I would say, to a better degree than I possibly could have ever had before by interacting with so many people. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's God, it's such a strange thing. Like I, I I'm a I'm an extrovert, you know, and and I work an introvert's job, you know, driving a truck, you know, a lot at night and and, you know, sometimes I get to see people at my delivery points, but that's short lived. And, uh, you know, my wife is, uh, she's a massage therapist and she's an introvert, you know, so when she comes home from work, she's done being around people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes she, sometimes she can't be around me. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good, good that I'm gone as much as I am. Uh, it, it helps us out, but you know, I think if we swapped careers, I think I'd be good. Um, you know, because it's hard to get, uh, it used to be hard to get people to go on these long goofball bike rides. Now it's pretty rare that, uh, you know, I'll, I started a Facebook group here. Uh, and I'll post a ride and I'm like, Hey, I'm doing this, you know, on this day. And, you know, there usually be a few people that's, that jump at it. And then when you're out, out on the trail with someone for, 12 hours you know you get to share life stories and really get to you know sometimes have a trauma bond and <laughs> oh yeah i imagine yeah. so especially yeah. something that intense where you're kind of pushing yourselves yeah yeah and well hey yeah. man i appreciate you doing this episode so much today i'm definitely going to have you back on again Sweet. Yeah. I feel like we could go for a lot longer, but my roommates have to come home and I've taken over the living room and I don't want them to kill me. <laughs> nice. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sweet, man. It's good chatting with you. And I'll, uh, I'll keep my ears on for future episodes and, and, uh, yeah. Oh, before I go though, uh, 
Where can I find your music? Okay, so yes, this is actually great to talk about on the podcast. Um, you can find my music. Uh, I released one single that actually Isaac and Gabby played on. It, it ah, yeah, I, yeah. It's called Gina, Gina, Gina. It's by mm-hmm. the Poptimist, the same name as the podcast. All right. But some exciting news uh, this week, which this is th- this episode will actually co- be coming out uh, a couple of weeks from now. But um, I'm going to be doing a session at Blackbird, and I'm going to be recording my own stuff. It, it came out. Sweet. It came up uh, just with someone that I play in a band with. So they called me up and offered me uh, to cut some of my songs in addition to cutting some of their songs. So oh, I'm about fantastic. to have some of my, my own solo material that I'm, that I'm singing on, which is a, an entirely a new thing for me because I've always just kind of been, you know, like singing in my bedroom, all these demos and constructing all this stuff. But yeah, you can, you can find it. Um, it's, it's everywhere. You can, yeah, just search for Gina, Gina, Gina by The Poptimist. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, yeah, cause I need some need some of that stuff for my uh, dopamine bump in my playlist while I'm out on the mountain. <laughs> Fuck yeah, yeah, very nice, cool. Yeah. Well, here, let me uh, let me actually hit stop here. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is produced to you by Taylor Miller.